Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the author of Baked, Sex, Drugs, and Alternative Comedy, as well as the host of Two Old Queens. Welcome to John Flynn. Hello. Welcome to me. Thank you. (laughs) Very excited to have you here. This is uh, a long time in the making. We had uh, Mark Rennie, your co-host of of Two Old Queens, on the show. And then I went on Two Old Queens to talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, the toy maker, everybody's favorite (laughs) Christmas movie. Classic. (laughs) (laughs) And you were immediately ready with a movie. You you had this locked and loaded, and I am very (laughs) excited to talk about this one. But before we get into today's movie, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in general, how you came to it, if it's something that you generally seek out, or if it's more of a once in a while kind of thing. It's something that I would say I came to later. And I probably came to a lot to do to mostly because of my podcast, Tool Queens, and my co-host, Mark Rennie, who's a big horror head. And so he kept recommending movies. And we did a couple series on our podcast of certain, you know, uh, we did like a, a Nightmare on Elm Street series. We did all the child play movies and stuff like that. And I've really come to appreciate horror movies more as a genre. And I think they're, I don't know, I think they're super fun. I, I, I guess it's, when I was younger, the genre that I was more into in this sort of makes sense with this movie was more musical theater. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, I came to this movie because in high school, you know, I like a lot of young musical theater kids, Phantom of the Opera was a big, hot new title at the time. That's how old I am. <laughs> that production that is still running uh, right now on Broadway. Uh, and so I had heard that this mu- movie was sort of like partially a mix of that and some other things. So I was like, and I, you know, saw some clips of it. It's like, oh, let's check this out. And so, yeah, since sort of like discovering it, I love it. I think it's great. Also, like uh, I a few years ago wrote a musical uh, parody of Stephen King's It, oh, wow. which uh, you can see on YouTube. It's all there if you want. Just search for Rockwell It musical parody and you will find it. It's a jukebox musical, so you probably know all of the songs already. They're pop songs and it's super fun. Who says no to that? <laughs> the rights holders, maybe, if it ever becomes an official thing. But uh, I'm sure if we pay them enough money, they'll be fine. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, but horror, I, it's a genre that I've really come to love and how it's sort of the extreme of it. It, it. it allows for so many different moods. Like there's like campy, funny horror. There's like serious, like scary. Like, And you can feel all those things at once. And I think it, it does have a lot in common with musical theater and that like the emotions are heightened. There's all that. And and it's a really fun, like emotional ride, even like the more serious, darker one. Like it, so I don't know. It's, it's a genre that I've come to later, but really appreciate and really enjoy uh, exploring and finding out like titles that I that are classics that I'd never maybe seen before and stuff like that. So yeah, that's where I'm at with horror. Hell yeah! Is there <laughs> a particular subgenre that makes you more likely to reach for one that you're like, oh, I love some movies about witches or something? Like let me <laughs> let me reach for this movie. Oh, gee, I don't know. I do like the supernatural stuff. I think there's more fun to be had with that sure. as opposed to like straight up slashers, like torture porn, that sort of like that kind of stuff doesn't really interest me. Mm-hmm. But I think the sort of more like fun, exaggerated, heightened stuff, I think is is a lot more fun yeah. to see. And I think also similar to like horror is so great, like comedy too, to watch with a full audience. Mm-hmm. Like just watching it alone is, you know, can be fun and great. But like Megan, uh, you know, Mark and I and a bunch of our friends saw, a, you know, opening weekend sure. and when a full audience and it was amazing it's so much fun it's it's such a communal experience that like everything feels bigger absolutely absolutely and mm-hmm. i think you're absolutely right that it's just like comedy where it sort of like frees you to feel those emotions in a way where yeah. you're like if you're at home you're like oh i don't want to just be like weird laughing by myself right but, like <laughs> if everybody's there having a good time or everyone's there you know shivering in fright or whatever you're you give yourself 
free reign to, yeah. to feel this. Yeah, it like things. it gooses it up a little bit. Yeah. So it's like you could watch a comedy home and you could laugh a little bit, but when you're in a room full of people and everyone's laughing, or like, or this can happen to like with a jump scare or something like that, where like everyone freaks out. You <laughs> enjoy, in addition to experiencing that emotion itself, you're also experiencing like, oh, it's so hilarious that this whole room went yeah. crazy. Or yeah, this you whole look room at each nuts. other and you go, <laughs> yeah, I can't oh believe my God, they we got all lost us. our minds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like in a comedy sense, like one of the most like memorable moments I had in a theater was the South Park movie mm-hmm. uh, when that song Uncle Fucker came on <laughs> and the entire the entire theater just lost like collectively we lost our minds like we did not expect this like people were punching each other they were just going so nuts over this number and I feel like you know like horror and comedy and stuff like that definitely can do that sure that's exactly what Terrence and Philip wanted exactly <laughs> exactly they wanted violence in the theater <laughs> Well, way back in 1841, Soren Kierkegaard predicted each age in history will have its own Faust. And today we're talking about the Faust of the 70s, (laughs) the Phantom of the Paradise. It was a long walk Mm -hmm. to get us there, but I got (laughs) us there. You did. (laughs) It's, It's a really interesting one. And obviously it does reference the Phantom of the Opera, famous 1909 serial by Gaston LaRue, which has been Mm -hmm. adapted into film and stage alike with great success. You know... Do you have an opinion on more traditional phantom stories? Is it something that you still like? Is or are you into that uh, phantom of the opera story in general? Uh, I I wouldn't say like it's one of my favorites. I mean, it definitely works, and there's something fun about it. That obsession. Um, there's the I think the you know the Lon Chaney one from the movie from the 20s. That's yeah. pretty great. Uh, you know, the musical is, is good for what it is. Uh, you know, there was, do you, did you ever see, there was one, a remake of a movie with, uh, what's his name? Who was, I can't think, I can't believe I can't think of his name right now. Freddy Krueger. Oh, they uh, did like a slasher version. Oh yeah, they did. Robert England is in that. Robert England. Yes. I remember seeing that. I saw that when it came out. Haven't, haven't had the need to go back and see it again. That feels right. That feels right to me. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but Phantom of the Paradise, yes, it's Phantom of the Opera, and yes, it's Faust. It's also Portrait of Dorian Gray, right. and it has a lot of other, like, it's really sort of like Brian De Palma, the director, was just like, here's everything he could, it felt, it feels like any idea he had, he just threw in the script and mixed it together with whatever drugs they were doing at the early <laughs> 70s, and sort of like a glam rock score and stuff like that. So that's that's so much of what I love about this movie, is just like the, the total bonkers mix yeah. of so many different influences and stuff like that. It's super fun. Yeah, and it's honestly, it's ahead of its time in, in terms of blending those things in a, in a pretty interesting way that, you know, that's part of why mainstream audiences rejected it is because they were like, well, you can only do one of these things, Brian. Right. Come it's on. too much. <laughs> <laughs> too many main courses in this meal. What's going on here? Although what I think is so funny about this movie is that it came out and it didn't get great reviews. Um, and, you know, most people, it was not considered a, a success. But for some reason, in Winnipeg, Canada, it was a hit. <laughs> Winnipeg. They knew what was up. Winnipeg <laughs> and <were>. Paris. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, we see what is really going on here. We and I think it. it's so funny that, like, in that in that one area, it ran like it ran for months. And like and it's like there's a huge there's been like festivals and fan like you know cons that they don't call them that but you know like those kind of things there over this movie which i think is hilarious and so weird Mm -hmm. and so specific that like winnipeg canada okay (laughs) what's going on over there guys they got literally everyone in winnipeg (laughs) together and they said let's just pick a movie that we're all gonna keep going yeah (laughs) this will be our personality (laughs) as a town yeah, because it's not even. It'd be one thing if it was like, oh, it was filmed here, so everyone has a sort of right. like a hometown no, sort it's of. Like, in this, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
it was released in 1974. It is a Brian De Palma classic, but it is also mm. kind of unique in his filmography. I think it does expand his repertoire in an interesting way while still having a lot of the early De Palma fingerprints kind of all over it. Definitely. Um, it has that flavor still while you look at it and you go, oh, this stands out in his filmography as something unique. Yeah. Is this is like his only musical. Mm-hmm. Probably is. Yeah. Shame, honestly. I I, th- I would have loved to see him take another one. <laughs> yeah, he'd be good at that. It ha- yeah, it has like it has a load those like split screens that he does. He does a lot in Carrie a lot where like it's the same scene, but you're seeing it from two different points of view. Right. And that's really fun and exciting. Also, there's something about De Palma. I don't know who his blood guy was, but anytime there's blood in a Brian De Palma movie, it is this very bright technicolor red. Yeah. It is not real. But it is so specifically his. Mm-hmm. And you see it in all of his movies. It's like he had this one guy who would like mixed whatever cauldron that they used for his his movie blood. Yeah. And it is so theatrical and fun and I love it. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that that's Jack Fisk, his production designer, and he's Probably. just so great. I love the work that he does. Because they're longtime collaborators. And so mm-hmm. You know, you see him work again and again with Jack Fisk and and Paul Hirsch, his editor, who's also really fantastic in this. And you kind of build that, like, theatrical troupe that has sort of a a language together. Yeah, that makes sense. That that works really well. He said that he got the idea of writing in an elevator that had a Beatles song (laughs) done as Muzak. And he was just getting pissed about it. And I can imagine him just steaming the whole ride up. <laughs> mm, like, this meeting I have to take. Oh, this isn't fool on the hill at all. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, so funny. Yeah. So he did. He There are a couple of inclusions of discreet nods towards various adaptations of Phantom of the Opera. Swan's mm-hmm. lackey Philbin is the last name of Mary Philbin, who played the Phantom's love interest in the original silent adaptation. The mm-hmm. dropping of the chandelier is referenced by the lightning bolt, and even right. the becoming disfigured while trying to sabotage a printer making copies of your music stolen by a greedy aristocrat is in the <laughs> 1962 version. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's not in the original story, but yeah, right. that makes sense. Right. But to your point, De Palma made it very clear that he didn't consider this to be like an adaptation of phantom of the opera right and that he wasn't just superficially modernizing it as a gimmick um the phantom of the original story is an anti-hero whose rival is the chivalrous man who frees christine while our phantom of the paradise is a victim himself of what the teaser labeled the monster that stole a great artist's music clearly referencing his rival swan so there is a a huge shift in perspective that is found in this one that's not in the original phantom stories yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, it makes it, it yeah it makes it completely different in that way. And that like the Phantom isn't is you sort of understand why he's doing what he's doing, right? Yeah, and it, for the most part, for most of the people that he does kill, there's one spotlight operator who he like kills. Who's just like, <laughs> hey, that guy wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just doing his job. Don't get mad at him. Yeah. But like everyone else, he he goes after. You're like, well, yeah, they are terrible people. They they deserve to be killed done him wrong (laughs) exactly this does align him with that 62 version as well as there's some 43 uh version where he's a violinist dismissed from the orchestra but those are also older men and here Mm -hmm. he has the perspective of youth the sort of idealism it really does make him unique among phantoms and so yeah i totally agree that this is not just an adaptation it's not a ripoff you know universal literally sued him about this infringing on the on the rights, and I uh, think that they are wrong to do that. Did they did they win that suit, or <laughs> they did they settle that? Sure they court, settled, yeah, of course. They didn't. Um, 
there apparently were a bunch of lawsuits at this movie because of things. Because, like, it also, you know, obviously he's making fun of the music industry at the time. Mm-hmm. So, like, the main character, Swan, is obviously, I mean, the, the main villain, this you know, this producer, Swan, is obviously supposed to be Phil Spector. Right. Um, and there was like, uh, he initially it was the, the record label was called Swan Song, which it turned out was also a record label that Led Zeppelin had. Right. So they like, they sued him. So there's, if you watch it, there's a lot of moments where like, you can see something very clearly <laughs> like superimposed over a sign or something. And it's just because it's like, oh, we had to take that out. Yeah, Brian talked about these lawsuits. He was he was like, right when we finished, we got slapped with four lawsuits. <laughs> was- oh, that must have been a fun day. Like, ah, we finally finished. <laughs> Everything's all set, ready to go. We're in the What's can. What's this? <laughs> Don't open that champagne just yet. Uh- <laughs> now to take a sip of coffee and open the mail. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Another one. Oh, no. <laughs> So yeah, so there was the Led Zeppelin mad about Swan Song Records, so they had to go back and add what Brian described as quote those crazy shaking mats, which they don't look great. <laughs> they don't no. So they changed that to Death Records and the Bird logo. Then King Features Syndicate had the Phantom book co- uh, comic book character. Oh, gotcha. And they sued because the original title of the movie was just Phantom, and okay. they wanted that changed. And then yeah, Universal said they were infringing on Phantom of the Opera. And then the manager of the musician, who in real life was actually electrocuted to death on stage, was suing about that plot point happening in this and saying that they were being uh, uh, disrespectful. Oh, wow. Saying, yeah. So all of those settled out of court, took the $2 million advance down to uh, <laughs> 1.5. <laughs> That's not too bad for five, for four lawsuits. Yeah, not too bad. Although 1.25 a lawsuit. It was probably, I didn't bad. look it up, but it was probably much more at the time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's, it's very different than... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but our phantom is Winslow Leach. Uh, he's played by William Finley, who did work with De Palma in Sisters as well, which is a movie that I enjoy very much. And he's mm-hmm. he's great in this. But it's 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 such a unique or not. I mean, it's so great because in Sisters he is very cold, and in this he's so mm. full of rage and passion and everything that it's such a great display of his versatility. Just his work with De Palma in general. Oh, that's great! I haven't seen Sisters. I'd love to check that out. It's very cool. Margot Kidder is really really fantastic in it. Okay, awesome. Oh, yeah, she's great. Yeah. What also I mean I love about this movie too. I mean, it's like a seventies movie, so they are like. Like they they let faces in the movies back then that they don't let in movies now. Right. Like, <laughs> like when they did the 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 movie version of the musical Phantom of the Opera, and they were like, "We'll have Gerard Butler as the Phantom," and it's like, "Why are you casting Gerard Butler, who is who I want to look at, mm-hmm. but he's just going to be under a mask and under like all this makeup?" It's like, what is the point? Like right. and like and Gerard he can't Butler, sing. not a great yeah. I was going to say not a great singer. So what are we getting here? We're hiring Butler and not not for the reasons we want to hire Gerard Butler. That's right. So. Yeah, but in this movie, it's like so many crazy, just like character faces in it. That's so great. I totally agree. There's the moment where um, they're like, "Oh, we're gonna take out your teeth," and it just like does like a close up on William Finley's <laughs> face, and you're just like, "I don't want you to take out my teeth." And it's like, "Oh, they're look, man, they're not perfect teeth." Too late. <laughs> <laughs> it might be okay. This might be a step up for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The movie originally actually was written with De Palma's collaborator from Sisters, uh, Louisa Rose. But after the script got bought and sold a few times with no real movement, she refused to take Mm. the final offer, and De Palma had to write her stuff out of the script to get it made at all. Wow. I didn't know that. What, what, was she the female lead or? No, she was just, uh, she just helped co write the original script. And then, uh, oh, oh, I see. Gotcha. She, she, um, 
they had to literally write everything that she had done out of it. All of her ideas they just took out of it. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, sorry, Portrait of Dorian Gray. Let's put that in there. All right, let's put some other literary classic we can just, just cobble in, it together, your stuff baby. with. Yeah, exactly. There is a lot of repre- uh, representational symbology in this movie as well. You talked about it critiquing the the art industry and and the music industry in particular. Uh, the Phantom sort of represents art. He's pitted against Swan, played by Paul Williams, who represents commercialism. Brian doesn't seem particularly impressed by mainstream entertainment, saying in an interview on the Blu-ray, "quote." If it's on TV, it's for sale, even points of view. And I thought that huh. was that was powerful, okay. Brian. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he really was ahead of his time, that Brian De Palma. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is uh, some very interesting casting. Paul is himself a successful songwriter, not only doing the music for this movie, but also having a long career working with The Carpenters, Three Dog Night. Mm-hmm. He even wrote The Rainbow Connection for The Dang Muppets. Yeah, I mean, he's a incredible. big Muppet collaborator. That's right. He's in some of the he, movies and everything. Yeah, he did Emmett Otter. He did the Muppet movie. He did the Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. He's great. Yeah, yeah. Great. He's got some great scores in him. It's like, oh, there's Paul yeah. Williams. Okay. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got such a weird, I mean, like, he's he's very short and he's got such a weird character he face mm-hmm. that he's such a great sort of like, like anytime you need someone who's like, Seems a little not quite human. <laughs> Get Paul Williams is a great choice. Yeah, Elfin, Cherubic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like you said, this character Swan was inspired by Phil Spector, famous producer with two firearms convictions in the 70s. So he was top of mind uh, yeah. and eventual murderer by what appeared to be mm-hmm. Russian roulette, as far as I could tell. Sure, that happens. Murder by Russian roulette. Yeah. That's, I think he like <laughs> forced, forced them to play Russian roulette or something. I was like, there wasn't a ton of information out there about it. I was like, oh, okay, Phil. That's tough because there's probably only one eyewitness from that yeah. event. No, we were playing a game. Yeah. That's what I swear. Exactly. <laughs> only one other person knows for sure and they're not talking. That's right. Two, that's what they say. Two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. <laughs> They had originally thought about David Bowie and Mick Jagger as potential swans as well, though those fell through. And when Paul Williams got involved, he was going to steal the role of Winslow from Finley, despite the role being written for Bill. And with Garrett Graham, who now plays Beef, as Swan, with Peter Boyle as Beef. That would have been a very different movie. So different, (laughs) especially like... The ripple effects of that would have been crazy, because in 1974, that's when Young Frankenstein comes out. And so yeah. and he's doing this instead of that, and he's this weird miscast the, beef. Who yeah, knows Peter Boy's career—he's too—he's—he's too, he's, he's too uh, typecast at that point. He's too much in a box. Exactly. If he does that, exactly. It's—I mean—it's too bad they didn't actually just get Meatloaf because obviously that's who that character is based on. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I also read that uh, Linda Ronstadt was almost the female lead. That's right. Yes, and, and, and that would have been great. It would have been very interesting. I think it would have been really cool. What Brian's concern was when he was talking about this was that. She was so much more famous than everybody else who was in the movie that they were like, oh, it'll be distracting if she's like. That makes sense. Suddenly there's this huge star. We need to give her more to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That scene where they're like, she'll be a backup singer. People will be like, no, no, she won't. No, absolutely not. No way. (laughs) Um, And so Paul was like, I'm not big enough to be scary. So let's just kind of rotate. And Boyle was out. Finley was back as the Phantom, Williams was Mm. Swan, and Garrett Graham became Beef. What can possibly be said about Beef besides that he leaves it all on the stage, baby? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's sort of crazy to think that there was a role that he's just so flamboyant and that just like out there, sort of glam rocky crazy. Yeah. I mean, that would have been a great role for someone like Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or Bowie. It would have been really interesting. And it was almost pretty different, too, because when he came to it, it was, there was a Shana Nas involvement was, uh, right. was at the very <laughs> beginning. And so he was like, oh, I'm going to base it all, kind of off of them. I'm going to go for this New York hoodlum kind of thing. And then Brian and Paul were like, uh, can you add a little little Richard to it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so he said, okay. And uh, and thus Beef was born. Yeah. that It's such a great character. So just like so ridiculous fun. and fabulous. Yeah, it's sort of like almost like a, a Frankenfurter, like just that sort of like crazy, just diva, glam rock, total gay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when you see that switch, when like, when he's like, doing this big snarl and then suddenly when he <laughs> drops it and he's like just being himself again and you're like yeah oh I, I like this is a big like i i, I it's just you expect one thing and it, and it totally it becomes a different thing yeah. in a great way and he sort of yeah i mean like he kind of looks like b arthur in a way <laughs> like he sort of has <laughs> and what's also funny too is like he's kind of like he's kind of half naked a lot but he doesn't have like a great body right, you know what i mean right. like it's not Horrible, but it's sort of like a little flabby. There's a, he doesn't seem to have ever gone to a gym or anything like that, but he's just like has this like strut and doesn't give a shit. But like, yeah, he's tall. He's got sort of grayish hair mm-hmm. and he's like really effeminate. And then he's <laughs> just like B. Arthur. And there's like a scene where like he's in his dressing room where he's got like curlers in his hair and it's just ridiculous. I love and he's it. just like, and he's just like bitching with people like a drag queen. <laughs> The whole time. It's so fun. It's really great. And um, yeah, he's it's just such a crucial part of the movie that like if this, you know, it, 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 he he's introduced pretty late into it. Yeah. But, but if it, if this character doesn't work, the whole movie falls apart. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of like the perfect thing of like he's deli- he's like ridiculous and delightful. But you also are like, it's fine if he gets killed. Right. Like, 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 like I'm, I'm good with that. It's sort of, I kind of want to see how he's going to sure. die because he's that sort of absurd and, and ridiculous. We do also have Jessica Harper as our Christine equivalent named Phoenix. Mm-hmm. This is her first movie, and De Palma saw her in a musical off Broadway, then invited her to audition, where Paul Williams had actually kind of a similar interaction with her to how Winslow meets Phoenix. And the, <laughs> okay, that, I mean, that was <laughs> that'll help. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We'll write that instead of that other stuff that woman wrote that we have to cut. Perfect. (laughs) And the fact that it was her first movie actually worked out pretty well because she had a bunch of questions and Bill was trying to help her out a lot, which translates to the Winslow Phoenix relationship where he's trying to sort of push her into the spotlight in his stead. Yeah, that does make sense. And it does help. Like, it it really does make sense that she wasn't a big star because she she isn't a huge, huge part of the movie. Like, she is more of sort of just like everyone's like, we love her. She's amazing, but she doesn't, she's not someone who like goes after stuff herself. You know what I mean? She's not a very proactive character, Mm -hmm. but she's just like this woman who has this great voice. And yeah, absolutely. And I think she is fantastic here because she's kind of working that same sort of innocence with Edge that was so great in Suspiria, the original Suspiria that she's in. And um, it just totally works. She she has a lot going on. And uh, I think that she's Jessica Harper is just fantastic in this. Yeah, she's really great. She's got a great voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it when she has, like, she has her audition where, and of course, like, what's so funny is, like, all the audition scenes they have, like, it's not, make, it's just, like, everyone's just in a line right by the piano. And it's not just a piano. It's, like, a three-piece band at this audition. And everyone's just, like, 
just back, like right on top of each other. It's her and she's like, I'm going to sing now. <laughs> she has a microphone. And then she does this weird dance. Like when she's done, she does this weird sort of like hippie dance off stage where she just like, sw- like swings her body around, then sure. like walks back out and just like, did I get it? <laughs> It's, it's like, I wish auditions were like that. Like, every other girl is just watching her audition. It's great. Oh, shit. They're all like, why didn't I do this? Oh, why is my back? I need to stretch my back to get to do that. She did that. I got to do better. There you go. There you go. The Faustian conflict of this movie is developed through this rivalry between Winslow and Swan and their symbiosis. They're not only entwined through the creative process and production, but also their lives become literally tied to each other. And uh, rather than suggest that art and kitsch are just part of a continuum of creativity, though, uh, De Palma uses this to sort of condemn the way the industry infests the art, symbolically defiling true love and artistic inspiration with its appetite. That was very that was very smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes right from De Palma. He talks about how uh, he, this is a quote. He said, yeah, I think a lot of it is motivated by my own experiences going into big buildings, bringing in your material that nobody pays attention to or rips off in one way or another. That's the mm-hmm. life of the business. I don't think it's bitterness necessarily. That's the way it is. And you have to be able to operate within that reality. Nothing wrong with Hollywood. If you're in a position to control your destiny, it's the greatest place in the world. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And when I can control my own <laughs> destiny, I'm sure I will have a huge casting couch with tons of women on it. There you time. go. There you go. <laughs> It is insane to like watch it to be like, I guess people people could get away with it back then in a way that they can't get away with it right now. I mean, obviously, it was still ridiculous in this movie, but like to just be that blatant right. about stuff like that just seems so right to literally be like, all right, next <laughs> next couple in. <laughs> Show me your tits. <laughs> all right, then get out of here. Oh, she's a real singer. <laughs> no one needs a singer. I want a screamer. That's like, I love that, too. <laughs> Um, As we get into this sort of Faustian topic, I do also think it's worth uh, exploring the idea of kitsch and the music industry a little bit. Um, Yeah. Theodore Adorno was a leading Mm -hmm. member of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, and he he first came up with the term culture industry in the 1930s, and he said that it's a system aimed at controlling society through the standardization of entertainment – so that it can be turned, uh, so that artistic expression can be turned into easily marketable products. And the essence of this culture industry is the kitsch aesthetic, which combines dehumanizing mass production with the trivialization of societal issues. Uh, it's insincere and derivative. It tends to be toxically reactionary. It cannibalizes higher culture and spits out the motifs in a more easily digested form. But this gap between art and kitsch isn't just in that mass consumption transformation, but the intent behind it as well. And it's easy to say, oh, popular entertainment is dumb. But Adorno is more specifically concerned with the vacuousness of what he calls the truth content in art. Okay. (laughs) And in that way, (laughs) kitsch is related to Marx's idea of false consciousness And how a subordinate class can be tricked into embodying the ideals of the ruling class because any analysis of kitsch is entangled with our own culture's sort of hierarchical approach to taste and the battle between high versus popular art. 
you know, it's not only a conversation in the in the 70s, but again, right now, um, things like the demagogic media conversations between like Marvel versus Marty. Uh huh. It's such an appeal to emotions and so like manufactured in a way that is ultimately serving the people who are benefiting off it. Like all of the clickbait, these blogs and stuff that are writing articles, mm-hmm. framing it as, oh, Martin Scorsese hates Marvel movies and says they're dumb <laughs> right. as shit. And then you get a billion people sharing this article and uh, and uh, and clicking on it out of anger to read exactly what got said. And it's just so manufactured and cynical in a way that is kind of disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what he's saying is that, like, the the kitsch is bad because it, it lacks it, – it's it's um, cynical. Right. It's It not only is making great art digestible for people in a way that he – that some people might view as diminishing it, but that it is gotcha. cynical and that it is meant to just – uh, profit off of it in a way that isn't actually respecting the art as art and the intent behind that. Oh, right. Oh, no, I totally see that. And they definitely have that in this in the movie, too, because there's the moment where Beef is still trying to learn this. So, like, this, the score... So what happens is Winslow has this score that he wrote, and it's something that I think it's sort of... It's a tough thing in any movie when they're like, we need the big hit single, or we need... Or, you know, like, or we need that one big thing, or, like, that, you know, if it's like a comedian, like, needs to have a killer set. Yeah. And then it's like... And it's supposed to be the the hit song that everyone loves or that takes over the charts or, you know, that, <laughs> and you're just like, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like in reality, the song that they use for that moment is okay. Like it's not like, it's like you need it to be like a hit, you know, like some major hit song and it just sort of just more represents it. And I feel that's kind of true about this Faust musical that they've, that is being written within the, sh- within the movie. Right. But as Beef is learning it, and he's just like, what is this garbage? And he's like, change the notes. Say the, who cares what you're saying? Just make it a different octave. Make it your own. Nobody cares. It's, it's definitely that thing of like, oh, we're just, we're just giving them the hit. Like, it, it's that idea of like, it, it's, this sort of happened at the big dawn of the internet where a lot of companies would be like, we want to make a viral video or like, we want to write a hit song. And it's like, you write a song and it becomes a hit or not, or you make a video and it goes viral or it doesn't. You can't decide this is what it is. Right. And that's sort of what this movie is doing is that the Swan character is like, I'm writing a masterpiece or we're writing the hit thing. And it's like, you just need to write it. And then the, the culture will tell you if it's a hit or not. But there, it, but there's also a way in which like, um, the mechanics and the machinery of entertainment can make something a hit just by forcing it upon everyone. It's exactly. like everyone's heard this and they've heard it enough times in enough different places that we all think it's a hit. <laughs> yeah. or we, uh, It behaves or it looks and smells like a hit, even though it is not in its soul a hit. Right. It doesn't. It's not actually saying anything. It's just sort of it's almost like the algorithm of like it has to be this color uh, work, at, you know, like at this moment in the movie, this moment needs to happen. Right. Or, you know. So, yeah, there definitely is that cynicism in this movie that 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 character has. And yeah, that is, it makes sense. It's something that's still happening today with like all these algorithms of like, uh, you know, um, if, if a, like, uh, here's a funny thing. Like, uh, I heard, uh, iPhones, they won't let a character use an iPhone if they're a villain. <laughs> In movies, the, the Apple won't let you. Right, and that sort of that sort of like controlling of ideas or, or, or of reactions of stuff. Right, exactly, and things that you wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I'm automatically associating iPhones with right. heroes <laughs> right. because of this, yeah. but like in your head, like it just gets in your head, like you see it enough yeah. times, and it becomes the truth. Right, yeah. He he used an iPhone to kill. I should not get an iPhone. <laughs> so true. Maybe I should go to Android. So true. Yeah. 
androids would never kill anybody. <laughs> <laughs> nope. It's never happened in all of cinema. That's right. <laughs> and this battle of high versus popular art is definitely the issue with Kitsch that De Palma is seizing on. It's so formulaic that it can't exist without taking advantage of the discoveries made by a fully matured cultural tradition. That the things that work in great art get replicated and permeate lower culture while being trivialized to the point of losing that initial power it had. You can see it in this movie with Faust, but another example might be uh, the Bible in Jesus Christ Superstar or Godspell or something like that. Uh-huh. In that it is, it's like, well, are you necessarily getting the same thing, this, the intricacies of Jesus's message, if, <laughs> if, uh, if, if, if it's being delivered in this way? I don't necessarily think that it's impossible to get, you know, something out of it. But I think that certainly there is a triviality to a musical that might not be the case with, like, sitting down to read the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) No, but I also think there's two different things that could happen. Like, there is a way in which you can reinvent something in a different form or a different sort of language or different, you know, a way of thinking about stuff that can bring out new stuff about it and can be can be sort of uh, bring out new qualities to it and or make it speak to a different generation or a different kind of people or people who are more akin to certain things. Mm. But there is also the sort of more cynical, like simplifying version of like, you know, this is what, you know, of just rather than trying to still bring something new and exciting or, you know, to it, as opposed to just cynically just being like, just do this, make it, they're dumb enough. Just, you just give them the simple beats, like make the tune simpler, like make, like don't make the music or the, or the, or the dialogue or the, or the, or the language too dense or too confusing for people and simplifying it and mushing it down. But I think you can, but I don't think it, that is always what's happening. Right. I think like in a way in adapting something, especially, you know, like it can be, it can be cynical, it can be simplifying and can be sort of reductive, but it can also just explore it in different ways. Or there's certain different things are good at different, uh, genres or different kinds of entertainment are better at certain things than others. Yeah. So there's certain things where like, oh yes, as a book, it works in a certain way, but in a movie, it has different kinds of power or, or there's music or whatever or however you, or theater, you know. Definitely. So I think they're, they both can be true, but I don't think it has to be the negative thing. No, I totally agree. And I think that De Palma does also agree with you as well in that, I mean, the original work of art that is being held up as the artistic truth is in itself an adaptation of Faust. Right. So there, I think that he's saying there is a way to do this and still have it be artistically, uh, have integrity, but, now, uh, yeah. but, but that it's, it's just also similarly easy to have it uh, be smoothed out in a way that is derogatory to the initial source material. Yes, absolutely. The one other thing that I wanted to say about Kitsch before we move forward is, that, <laughs> sorry, I know, look, I know <laughs> it's a lot, all. but I could talk about Kitsch for days. There we please. go. <laughs> well, I just think it's also interesting that it lacks the self-awareness and critical distance of camp. Those, they're kind of, okay. to me, like those are the two opposite ends of the spectrum because okay. kitsch is appealing to superficial and easy enjoyment that appeals to like sensational emotions, good and bad alike. Okay. But camp is not always the – like there are people who are like, oh, I don't get it. I, I, sure. I this This does not I, – I can't engage with this in a way that I am getting enjoyment out of it. And I think that because it is sort of – weeding out the people who aren't interested in it and finding those who do connect with it in a way that is more authentic to those people and to the art itself. I think that that is sort of 
why camp and kitsch exist on the the two sort of sides there. Okay, interesting. And what's funny is in in the podcast I do with Mark, we talk about camp a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's something and in discussing, it's one of those things that a lot of people, especially like when we get to like the categories we're talking about camp, a lot of people are like, I'm not quite sure what camp is or what campy is. And what we've sort of come up with or where we're at right now with it, it's ever evolving, sure. uh, is that I kind of feel like there's two different in a, in a broad sense, there's two different kinds of camp. Like there's knowing camp and then there's unintentional camp. So like knowing camp to me would be something like like to me and like in its in its purest form, camp to me feels like when the the exec the execution of like say in in this case like movies like the the actors choices or the director's choices or the writing whatever what they're trying to do and what they actually do sort of <laughs> there's like there's a chasm between the two mm -hmm. you know like whether whether it's intentional or not so it's like you're so angry about mm -hmm. something your reaction to something is so extreme and again like there's knowing and there's unintentional so like knowing camp will be something like a john waters movie so like when divine in you know in female trouble is you know is throwing over the christmas tree because he didn't get the she didn't get the cha-cha <laughs> heel she wanted for christmas like everyone knows they're being ridiculous right. they all know and they're having fun with the absurd and how the, the a disproportion the actual like execution of their emotion is to the reality of the moment. Then there's the unintentional camp, which is something like a mommy dearest or like a showgirls, where like what they're doing, what those actresses are doing in those scenes are so insane and so ridiculous that it's so funny. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, there are people who who like, I mean, it tends to be very gay where people are like, that's hilarious how crazy, you know, these actresses are being as opposed. And there are people who are like, no, it's just bad. Right. And like, they almost don't get the like, no, 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 it's fun to how bad they are. Right. Like, that's the joy of it. That's why this is entertaining. Yeah. As opposed to like, oh, no, it's just bad acting. Kitsch, I'm trying to think like what I think of Kitsch. Like, how would you define Kitsch in difference than camp? Like, like, what would be something that you would say is like kitschy, but not quite campy? Kitschy to me is like the rock movies <laughs> where, <Okay. it's> like, <laughs> yeah. where it's just right. like it is just so designed to check the boxes and it, they don't even necessarily have to look like crap necessarily, but just like there's nothing special or unique or interesting about them. Everything is sort of pulled together by a committee in order to make the most appealing thing possible for mass con uh, mass consumption. And I think that that's the difference for me is that camp mm -hmm. is less interested in mass consumption because they're interested in finding the people who engage with it in a way that because it speaks to them. Whereas the cynicism of kitsch is so wrapped up in it that it, uh, it just has that automatic like, Oh, well we need this to ap appeal to the largest possible base. Gotcha. So it's like Kitsch has this sort of like the, the rock movie needs to have this, this, and this. There needs to be this many fights. This many things need to blow He's up. He's not allowed this, to you know, lose a needs... fight. Right. Right, right, right. Like he gets the girl at the end. There's never any, there's no like moral complexity to him as a character. Right. Gotcha. So it's almost like, <laughs> it's almost like dumb. Yeah, I get that. There's like, there's no, like it, it almost like can't offend. Right. If you put them in a lineup and you like looked at a screenshot from one of them, would you be able <laughs> to tell which one of them it was from? Maybe not. Like probably not. Yeah. There was a quote from De Palma who didn't mince any words, and he said that it <laughs> so great. He said, <laughs> he said it dehumanizes both its producers and its consumers, satisfies their lowest instincts, and makes them incapable of establishing a genuine, critical, and self-conscious relationship with the world. Wow. <laughs> Damn, Brian. Okay. <laughs> 
He really hated that Beatles music song. He did. And not to jump <laughs> literally to the end of the movie, but you can see the public's response is violent, orgiastic, to the point where it overtakes the artistic pretext of the cantata. Yeah. And the music subsides while they all continue dancing and having this, this huge uh, event. The music has fulfilled its commercial purpose. It's consumed and now discarded irrelevant. Yeah, that's true. It's like it whips them into a frenzy where they start like killing him. You right. know what I mean? Like his like Paul Williams's character like gets stabbed and the people in the crowd are so excited that they start stabbing him as well. Like it's so Yeah, I guess like Kitsch there's yeah, there's a soullessness to Kitsch. I guess where it's just like the people who are creating it are like they're not creating it out of any sense of of joy or like artistic desire. Right. Which you do see a lot in movies where like you know, a lot of times I would rather see a bad movie where you're like, oh, I could see someone was passionate about this at some point, as opposed to something that was just like, we need an action movie. It needs to do this. It needs like, yeah, I would say a lot of like Hallmark Christmas movies feel like kitsch to me. Where yeah. It's just like, it has to be this. There has to be, you know, Christmas in every shot. Everyone needs to know what it is mm-hmm. and it needs to des- deliver in this way. In a way you could say fast food is kind of like kitsch. Definitely. I mean, you can kind of apply it to so many things, even within like the subgenre of B movies. You see something like a like a sci-fi sharktopus or whatever, yeah, and it, it's just so transparently cynical compared to something mm-hmm. that is like made regionally for like a thousand dollars on a weekend and is right. so much more enjoyable because they're trying because they are they are like we're right. making a good movie. Right, right. Or they believe in something about this project where, like, it could be the actors who are like, this is going to make my career. Mm -hmm. This will do something for me, as opposed to people who are like, this is just a paycheck. It needs to, we need to fill, you know, a Tuesday night at eight o'clock slot. Right. And that's what it is. Like, there's never any sense of excitement or like a personal enjoyment of it. It's just purely like clocking in, clocking out, (laughs) creating the thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, The movie does also get into the questions of the moral rights of a creator over the work. And to that note, it might be of interest that Paul Williams, who again plays the corrupt swan, actually does the singing voice of the Phantom. So there's a funny twist of him like stealing his own work in a cool, like a funny way. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because they do a funny thing. It's like a joke where because the the Phantom character, um, he is he is he's like deformed and like he can't speak anymore. So they give him like this voice box and they're like playing with like, what's it going to be? What's the speaking voice going to be? And then like, cause he's like singing and he sounds horrible and they keep adjusting it. And then it sounds like Paul Williams. Yeah. Paul Williams is like, perfect. That's it. Right. Like, what else would funny. this guy, what else would he think would be perfect? Except exactly. his own voice. It sounds like me. <laughs> the Nailed kids it. will love it. <laughs> I've made the rainbow connection. <laughs> Um, Like I said, Jack Fisk did work on this as well. One thing I really like that he did was that Brian talked in the interviews about how when you're rich and powerful, you create an environment around you that's a reflection of the world as you want to see it. And so all the door frames around Swan are cut very low and tall ass Winslow has to like duck under them all the time. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's great. Yeah, it's very fun. Uh, Also, Sissy Spacek worked with him as set uh, set dresser on this one. Uh, and they <laughs> shot in Dallas at the Majestic Theater for those great interiors. Nice. That's so funny how it feels like you like that wouldn't happen today. We're like, sis, like, sissy space. Like, it's like, sure, I'll do set decoration. Why not? 
Oh, my. Know, did Julia Roberts do props before she was an actress? You know, <laughs> she was Jack Fisk's girlfriend at the time. And so she was uh-huh. like, all right, I'll come along. I'll, I'll set okay. dress. Why not? <laughs> and then she's constantly pouring that blood on herself. And Brian De Palma was like, you might hold on. Hold on. I might second. be able to use you one day for something. I'm not sure what. But one day there will be a movie. Let hmm. me tell my friend Steve King about this. <laughs> hmm. It did release on November 1st, 1974, and was a box office flop. Thank- was it? I thought it was the day before, uh, uh, Halloween. Uh, I don't believe so. I saw I, I saw oh. November 1st, but uh, it's possible okay. I got that Sorry. mistaken. No, no, no. <laughs> it was a box office flop, thanks to the mix of genres, like I said. It made less than yeah. $20,000 on both of its first two weekends. There was some critical panning, but people did yeah. like the music, which got an Oscar nomination. Yeah, and, uh, crazy. And like we said, Winnipeg and Paris loved it. Those yeah. were the two places. <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, though, it has gone from flop to cult fave. Guillermo del Toro met Paul Williams as a young man and had him sign the album, and Daft Punk actually met at a screening, and then both of them worked with Paul himself decades later. So there you yeah. go. That's fun. Yeah, they so said they're very inspired. I mean, they're Daft Punk. They're like black suits with big robot right. heads. Yeah, it, right. Doesn't get much more right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's real A to B there. No. That's right. <laughs> and of course, it's now gone from cult fave to best horror movie ever made. So Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the actual movie. Starts off, we get this great intro, Swan, he has no other name, his past is a mystery, but his work is already a legend. Real subtle. Real subtle, very much so. And one of those works is The Juicy Fruits, giving birth to the nostalgia wave of the 70s through the doo-wop song that we see Swan producing over the opening credits. This was supposed to be Shauna Na at first, but they moved away from this direction for two reasons. First, Paul wanted the freedom to satirize without it being a wink at the camera of ha ha inside joke. It's Shanana, which I get. <laughs> ha ha. <laughs> and then second, he felt like with the crew he had, who he'd worked with before and had heard all of his bad suggestions and stuff, that he'd be able mm-hmm. to work with them more collaboratively than being scared of Bowser and the boys. <laughs> <laughs> so intimidating. Yeah. I know. I know when I am. Thinking of the most intimidating band of all time, it's Shanana. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but right away, the movie draws attention to both the power of the culture industry and the standardization of popular music. Duop obviously comes from gospel, reached the peak of its popularity in the mid-50s, but by the time this movie comes out, the style has been crystallized into something instantly recognizable, the sound gestures all associated with the 50s and the carelessness of the era. And of course, that's exactly what they're warning about with this kitsch is that all of the great things about uh, gospel, all of the impact that it has, the spirituality of it, then gets diminished into these three boys singing a singing this song yeah. that uh, <laughs> is, is making a comic, a farce out of this story of a man killing himself to yeah. save his sister. <laughs> right. <laughs> And it's it is really great though. I do I like the song. I think it's fun. Uh, I, yeah, it's like a real good sort of sound like you know like sort of like a song that's supposed to sound like a fifty. It's very very like leader of the pack. Yes, yes. Very where it's much like so. that with like I love a song with a monologue in the middle of it. Like, that's always great. <laughs> got it. You gotta love it. <laughs> and uh, you know, to Paul Williams's credit, even that monologue is really nice because it does have like a sort of musicality to it. Like he. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's able to incorporate it into the music in a way that feels very natural, which, to be fair, is not always the case with these monologues. No. In the 
<laughs> that is true. Yeah. <laughs> and there's silence until Swan starts clapping in the gallery. And the everyday people's reaction is reliant on that of the tastemaker who sees the band and the song as simply a means to the end. So there's no authentic reaction to the music itself. Uh, It's just, I like this as a possible sales tactic. And then the people who say, oh, if Swan likes it, it must be good. Uh, I'll follow along with him. Yeah, we're told to enjoy this. Exactly. Which, yeah. And... uh, Swan brushes aside his lackey's revenge <laughs> with the sure, sure. And he says, I'm looking for the next big sound to introduce my Disney world, my Xanadu, the paradise. And he's looked everywhere, but can't find the right thing. But what's this down below? Perfect timing. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. This weird, ugly guy just comes in and starts playing. Why? No one's asked him it's to. It's Winslow Leach, sir. <laughs> That's right. He's he's playing the piano alone. Uh, he covers up their own uh, the, the Juicy Fruits sign outside to say <laughs> Winslow Leach on the piano. And the rambunctious crowd once stood there. Now there's nobody. And they don't even want him. They just want the music. The music, he says. Yes. <laughs> Give us two or three up numbers, they tell him. But Winslow knows his own worth. And he refuses to let his original Faustian cantata be turned into the kitschy mass consumption slop by Swan, who personifies this culture industry, and the talent scout who thinks a song is a song, you either dig it or you don't. Winslow also freaks out at the very idea that somebody else would be the singer after he worked so hard on it. This is this is not something I'm <laughs> proud of, but there is okay. definitely a relatability to being unwilling to give up that kind of control, you know, especially having now done this show by myself for all these years. And it's like, uh-huh. I've tried out a few editors here and there. And every time I'm like, it's not the same. I could do it better. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. No, that makes sense. And also it's fun. It is like the t- it's still in the 70s where like musicians didn't have to be gorgeous. Right. So like there's not like there's a way if that guy were now to be like no 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 I'm a singer people would be like uh, have you looked at Instagram <laughs> uh, you're not you're, it's not gonna happen I don't know Winslow. yeah <laughs> he is seduced again though by the idea of having his work produced by Death Records and we cut to one month later where he's being thrown out of the building uh, and so instead he breaks into Swan's house currently filled with girls practicing audition songs including Jessica Harper and he sidles up to her and he sings along with her. Because it's a song that I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Who gave you this music? (laughs) He says there must be some mix up as to why he's not in there auditioning singers with them. And he also learns that they're opening the paradise with the cantata. And the woman who says it to him tells him that she's no kidder, which made me laugh because he worked with Margot Kidder. (laughs) Yep. There's a lot of that in this movie. If you look for it. Jessica Harper introduces herself as Phoenix, a girl who just wants a role in the chorus. (laughs) I just want to sing, Mr. (laughs) Producer. (laughs) He agrees to help her, despite being thrown out once again. And Phoenix is brought back to what is clearly a casting couch, but she refuses and is tossed out alongside him. A bunch of girls put on a show for Swan in a giant circular bed. But when yeah. he, which first of all, very funny when they're all like, he's watching right now. <laughs> That's a, a funny sort of thing in this movie. So like every part of it is like every corner, every inch of this theater or wherever Swan is, there's cameras. But it's also the 70s. So the cameras are huge. <laughs> there's no there's no subtlety. There's just like big, huge cameras. You know, like I'm sure today, it's, you know, you, you wouldn't even know there were cameras there. But there it's just like 
big honking cameras. And the girl's everywhere. like, oh, you're right. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that in the corner. <laughs> Five cameras. <laughs> too, bu- <laughs> too busy writhing on this circular bed with 12 other women. And some woman whose face we don't see. Oh, yeah. yeah funny about that because when, uh, when Swan actually emerges into the room, this woman's face who we don't see is actually revealed to be Winslow in disguise. Uh, made me laugh a lot when suddenly he's yeah. like, did you get my cantata? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did he slip in there? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter because they're throwing <laughs> his ass right back out uh, with mm. an ass kicking this time for good measure. <laughs> a swat yep. is swallowed up <laughs> by a mass of bodies. Winslow mm. tells the cops that he needs their help, but they're paid off by Winslow and frame him for drug possession. So he goes to Sing Sing for life. <laughs> for life, Winslow. <laughs> this is interesting for him to be like, oh, money corrupts, and this is why the police are all, like, they're all paid off by the music industry, and drug possession charges are bullshit, and they can plant them on people. And Brian, my man Brian, was really mixing it up. I'll tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> I respect the hell out of Brian. I love a lot of his early stuff. It's really, I mean. Oh, he's so great. He's. I feel like he uh, has a has an edge to him that, you know, some of his contemporaries like uh, George Lucas just don't have. Sorry, George. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> yeah. Also, like this whole, like he, you could tell he's just having so much fun with this movie. Like there's so much stuff, like especially in the beginning. I mean, not just the beginning, the whole movie. That's just like ridiculous. Right. But it's. <laughs> no, just the beginning, I think. <laughs> <laughs> where it's just like so absurd but it is so much fun that you sort of are just like who cares you know what i mean like or to be like that wouldn't happen it's yeah. just like do you know how to have fun yeah right this is- <laughs> sometimes believability is allowed to be sacrificed can, yeah it's, it's a real drag sometimes <laughs> this is the thing is that like realism i'm like i'm over it you know like all these movies like manhunter like i prefer manhunter to silence of the lambs to be honest because I think that what Michael Mann is doing in terms of like the fun lighting and and the sort of surreal moments and and all of the maximalist stuff that he's doing is more interesting to me than just being like, all right, here's the story of a serial killer. The forensic specificity. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, they're different things, but yeah, I yeah. agree that there's something fun to be had and just to like, oh, it's just like emotionally true. Like you're feeling what mm. it is. Like exactly how, like who, yeah, it's like we said earlier, like who cares how Winslow got into that room right. with the women? Exactly. Who cares about all these other things? This is like, we're just having fun with this moment. That's absolutely right. Um, six months later, he's building tiddlywinks in the jail while the, <laughs> while the radio reports that Swan has another gold record and he's finally ready to open the paradise with the juicy fruits. Um, I did think it was notable. I didn't see this discussed anywhere, but I thought it was notable uh, that after all of those casting couch sessions, he didn't even actually pick a woman. He just went back no. with the juicy fruits. <laughs> yeah, tells you something about Swan. Yeah. <laughs> In a rage, Winslow packs himself into a box and makes his escape. <laughs> exactly. Who cares how he gets out of prison? He gets out of prison. He, with his big metal teeth. It's so funny. It's him like <laughs> falling out of the box when he gets there. It's amazing. <laughs> he bursts into Swan's office at Death Records and he tries to blow up the record press, but he gets trapped, burning the crap out of his face. It is nasty. Yes. <laughs> uh, I also think it's interesting that he literally has his music burned into his skin. Uh, disfiguring it and oh, yeah, right, Ooh, that's right. Oh, I hadn't realized that. Okay, pretty smart. <laughs> um, it literally <laughs> makes it so that he can't escape it 
even as he escapes this chase and everything, that he is uh, is literally haunted by the remains wow, of his music. It's on his face. That's right. No wonder he puts that mask on. Yeah, and he flops into the river. <laughs> That was actually a toy press that they had gotten access to, and during mm-hmm. the rehearsals, the block that was set up to stop it before hitting Bill shattered, and so he was <laughs> fucking terrified getting in there. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. Apparently, he did almost get crushed by yeah. it. They pulled him out just in time because the things that were supposed to stop it broke, as you said, and he's like literally got out seconds before he actually could have died. Incredible, incredible. Mm. It's a real scream in that moment. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> the papers do report him dead, but then we get some slasher-style killer POV camera angles as the reborn Phantom stalks the Paradise backstage. He grabs a really fun mask along the way. Uh, unfortunately, William Finley was literally allergic to it, and <laughs> he, also, <laughs> he also couldn't hear anything, especially in the rain scenes. So he was like, this mask was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Did not have an easy shoot, although they did stick a walkie-talkie receiver in there at some point to help him out a little bit. Oh, good. Too little, too late, he said. (laughs) We do also get a fun De Palma split screen here. He's testing things out in advance of Carrie. While building tension, juxtaposing Winslow's depositing a bomb in the car prop while the Juicy Fruits, now the Beach Bums, practice a surf rock rendition of Faust. Right. Not as good of a song no. as their first one. <laughs> I do also love that they're like, I'm opening my big rock club with a cantata. Like, okay. <laughs> That's not normal. That's how things happen in Philly. That's what the kids love. The kids love cantatas. <laughs> Mom, mom, can we go to the cantata this weekend? <laughs> well, if you do all your homework. Homework. <laughs> This malleability is definitely something De Palma is unimpressed by, that it's a costume and not a passion for them, that they're just keeping up with the fads. And the the bomb goes off. And Swan is pissed, but he plays it cool, even when Winslow holds him at knife point after ambushing him in the room. And he says, oh, I've been looking for you everywhere. And he puts him on the defensive by revealing his disfigured face and shredded vocal cords. And this is, I mean, the charm of Paul Williams on full display here as Swan when he Mm. puts him on the defensive, then brings out the honey. Oh, we can work together, my dear boy. I am Colonel Tom Parker all of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah, he's not Swan for nothing. That's right. They're going to put together a new group and do Faust his way. You can even help audition the girls. Trust me, he says. Phoenix is one of those who auditions, and she says she'll give Swan anything to sing, even her voice, and she impresses the boys in the box. This song is so great. I really love this audition scene. A very yeah. fun intro, too, when she does her little, like, fedora toss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was talking in the interviews, and she was like, uh, I almost gave the costume designer a heart attack because all of a sudden I was like, I need something more and just shoved a fedora on my head and messed up my hair that they had worked on. <laughs> Sometimes you got to go with what feels right. You got to go gotta with what feels it. right. And it's a grim image cutting from this to then Winslow singing in the studio. <laughs> and he's <laughs> wired right into the computer. He's croaking out the song. Not pretty. No. <laughs> But like we said, Swan does a little filtering, presto changeo, Winslow is fit for the radio again, and uh, it seems telling of Brian's opinion of technology as a shortcut to skill, but also, like we said, uh, it is, of course, Paul Williams' voice, uh, yeah. and so who else would he want it to sound like? This is a cool room. I like this set a lot. 
it was a state-of-the-art studio at the time in California, and they didn't even want the film to use it. They were like, no, you can't film in there. And then Paul Williams <laughs> was like, hey, come on. Come on, I'm Paul Williams. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you did right for the Carpenters. Okay. All right, Paul, you owe us one. <laughs> He also does get his little box set up so he can talk, although since that's less powerful, it's still tinny and fucked up, and so Phoenix will be his voice now. He's going to lock himself up here to work on rewriting the cantata for her. The paradise will open, and Winslow gets his work heard. A win-win-win that will surely pan out for all three. So so here's a textbook-sized contract to be signed in blood. Written in calligraphy. Oh, yeah. That's never a good sign. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it means I spent a lot of time on it. <laughs> if someone hands you a contract in calligraphy, I think you should just say no as a principle. <laughs> like, this is evil. This, whatever you've got in here is bad. <laughs> Very old-timey uh, contract you have. <laughs> After Star Wars came out, De Palma went up to George Lucas because they were buddies working together. Mm-hmm. And he was like, George, what is this? Vader's wearing my sound box. <laughs> Okay, Debaba. Apparently, George Lucas just laughed and said, well, at least it's not black. (laughs) Um, And also, I think, you know, Vader's look in general is kind of similar to the Phantom a little bit. He's got the big Yeah, I mean, anytime someone's in all black, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. The contract, though, includes a clause permitting them to do with him at their pleasure to rule, to send, fetch, or carry him or his, be it either body, soul, flesh, blood, or goods. That's a transportation clause, he says. Yeah. (laughs) I did also think it was interesting that, once again, goods is placed on the same level as the things that make us up. So That's uh, true. There you go. Very cynical. Yes. It is also funny when Swan barely even tries to be convincing here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sign it. Now we're in this together forever. (laughs) It's like, oh, God. Are you twirling a mustache? I didn't think you had one spontaneous mustache sprouting (laughs) that's evil (laughs) when that recording is played back at swan's though swan's voice is different older corrupt (laughs) he's uh we got a fun working on the cantata monologue you know or montage montage. yeah Yeah, excuse me montage (laughs) and uh winslow is furiously scribbling images of phoenix and gold records swimming in his head as he burns the thick red candle down to the wick (laughs) yes and all the drugs too this movie did was like drugs were fun in the 70s i think (laughs) breakfast (laughs) just hands him a pile of pills swan deems it tasty but he abhors perfection in anyone besides himself so he secretly makes phoenix the backup singer bending the cantata into several different styles and singers until it feels right with a with a little guitar distortion. And the rest of the singers were people that Paul knew from his A&M record work. So they, it was like someone from yeah. Paul Revere and the Raiders and then three others. Yeah. Uh, just singers. It sounds right, like, hey, what are you doing? Do you want to yeah, come right. to, wait, make a few bucks real quick? There you go. <laughs> just learn 16 bars. It'll take you an hour tops. It'll be fine. <laughs> The commercialization of death as mass entertainment appears in almost every scene of the movie, and even the name of Swan's record label is Death Records, but you can see it on full literal display at Swan's press conference at the airport, where, dressed as an undertaker, he introduces the future, Beef! (laughs) 
What's so funny about this scene is that, so the Paul Williams character, Swan, like he never wants his photograph taken. Like he always wants to be in shadows and stuff like that. And so no one's allowed to take his picture, but they have it like outdoors. It's a bright, sunny day. Like you would think if that were the case, it would be like indoors, very weirdly artistically lit. Yeah. So that even if someone did have a camera in there, it probably wouldn't be a good picture. But it's just like, nope, bright, sunshiny day in California on this uh, tarmac. Um, (laughs) Sure. Sure. We had a few guards who were just like, hey, you're not allowed in, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it's great. The grimace is very funny when Beef comes out. Now, first of all, obviously the name Beef explicitly saying that they view you as a piece of meat. Uh, right. But also the scene, it alludes to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari uh, in which the good doctor presents the sleepwalker Cesar, whose makeup, a white face with nearly black circles painted under the eyes inspired uh, the look and set for the show and Beef's backup band, uh, The Undeads, formerly The Beach Bums, formerly The Juicy Juicy Fruits. (laughs) Quite an evolution. That's right. (laughs) And now they're in this theater of horror style of heavy metal uh, from Kiss, or Alice Cooper is a good example of it. Although it is worth noting that Kiss didn't release their first album until February 1974, when this movie was already long in the can, so there's some like weird conflict about what came first uh, and if they huh. ripped them off. And then Paul Williams was like, I've worked with Kiss and I'm always too scared to ask because I'm so tiny and Gene Simmons is huge. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah, it is worth mentioning that uh, this is just another fad that the beach bums are artificially fabricated to fit instead of any kind of actual self-expression. And Beef himself resembles the look of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which you mentioned earlier. Um, the popular stage version debuted in 73, so the year prior. So uh, Brian gotcha. also talked about it. He had seen it. And it's kind of interesting because the mad scientist transvestite, or uh, I, I guess I, he calls himself no, he, a transvestite. He yeah, says transvestite. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Frankenfurter and his, his blonde creature, Rocky. But Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of proposes this bisexual libertine lifestyle as a means of liberation from an oppressive system. But Phantom of the Paradise is pessimistically saying even these libertine excesses happen according to the rules of the corrupt entertainment industry. Beef here shows his muscles on stage and is dressed in the newest glam fashion, but he's only playing the role he's been paid to perform compared to his offstage on makeup self, like we were saying earlier. And so there is, I think, a, a deep pessimism <laughs> in this movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. That even, uh, even yeah. these great examples of fun outsider art can kind of be corrupted by the industry that is uh, is propping them up almost. Yeah, absolutely. It d- definitely feels like the the persona of beef isn't authentically that person. It's just like, this is what the kids want these days. Right. Yeah, you're a bisexual freak. Uh, go, yeah, be that. Do that. Exactly, exactly. It is funny and grim also to see how Swan is drugging Winslow up now at this point to keep him going, literally stealing the sheet music from under both him <laughs> and a pile of pills. <laughs> And then they cask of Amontillado him in there with his goons. (laughs) It's such a funny transition, too. You get the neon swan wipe. Yeah. It's like it just crosses across the stage. You go, okay. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Winslow freaks out when he wakes up. He realizes the betrayal and his scream scares Beef, who thinks that the theater is possessed. Yeah. (laughs) And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. 
He's not wrong. And Winslow tears right through the dang brick. I don't know why Fortunato didn't think of that in the post story. <laughs> right. It was like it, that, that cement didn't seem dry. <laughs> Just push through, buddy. <laughs> Beef does a ton of coke, then gets in the shower. He's singing and scrubbing as the camera recreates the psycho shower kill. Um, though the tension is punctured by his stifling the scream with a plunger before saying, please don't sing my songs. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it lacks the dramatic tension of the actual psycho shower scene. But right. yeah, <laughs> it is also kind of an interesting to consider, though, because first of all, we've already talked very much about the transformative nature of high art into uh, more digestible stuff. And some might say that that's what Brian De Palma does with a lot of Hitchcock's work as well. Sure. And he's kind of saying like with his homage here, like, hey, I'm I'm kind of guilty of this as well, but. It's also interesting for him to still have this kind of sense of humor and be able to to put it in here and then distort it in a goofy way after getting really lambasted for sisters and Pete like a lot of the critics were like this is just stealing from Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> you're not really adding here, you're just taking. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh so he's he was like, "Well, I'm still going to have fun with it and I'm going to put it in the in this and and make fun of it a little bit and uh, I think it works. I think it is a funny moment that is kind of surreal where he like pokes through with yeah. a knife and then just <laughs> sh- sh- shoves the plunger. And the, on. And the other hand has a plunger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, the thug pressures Beef into continuing the show. And so go on, it does. The set looks sick. Like I said, it and the band's outfits are inspired by Dr. Caligari. Another instance of that canon distillation. Yep. And uh, they pretend to chop up some of the audience, which cracked me up. Which that I thought was so great. I would love to go to a show where people did that. It was so funny. Like there's there's these these singers are just like. It seems like they're just ripping heads and body parts out of people in the audience. It's so much fun. It's so ridiculous. Oh, I love it. I love it. And the song is fun, and they Frankenstein up beef out of the chopped bodies. Whoa, George from the future here, butting in with an editor's note. Never done this before, but as I was working on the episode, it struck me that the imagery of assembling Frankenbeef here out of the audience also speaks to the way kitsch artists and their works are themselves cobbled together out of the canon and another look at the malleability of those selling out. That's neat. Okay, back to the show. His costume rocks. He smashes the mic stand over his knee, which rocks. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm just like. Sorry if this makes me a mark. Like, we saw that this is just put on. But damn it, man. I love it. He's up there. He's moving around. <laughs> he's shredding. He's, it's just yeah. It rules. <laughs> yeah. You definitely like, oh, Beef is a rock star. Like, he, it makes sense. He gets on that stage. I, and I thought a lot of his moves, he did sort of remind me of Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. His little, like, uh, like twist walk. Weird and sort stuff. of, like, yes, yeah, sort of prancingness about yeah, the stage. Yeah. It's just sort of like, it was super fun. Yeah. Uh, also, an amazing performance by Garrett, who was so sick yeah. that he could barely walk. <laughs> he was like Perfect. flop sweat the whole nine. <laughs> and they said he got up there and left it all on the you stage. You got to do it. <clears throat> you can also see Phoenix there as a backup dancer, which I thought was fun. She has like makeup on yeah, yeah. as one of them. And suddenly from the rafters, Winslow strikes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> he launches the neon thunderbolt that had animated Frankenstein's monster at beef which electrocutes him to death in a way that the audience thinks is just part of the show. Um, I love the way this is shot. It stutters a little bit from the electricity. And Paul Hirsch Mm -hmm. said that what he did to accomplish this 
is he reversed every pair of frames. So let's say that that's 10 frames. It went two, one, four, three, six, five. Okay. And it, it just like makes this really cool juddering motion uh, for B. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's so funny to like hear how they, before, before we had all these great technology at our fingertips to be like, how do I make this work? <laughs> <laughs> uh, flip the uh, frames, I guess. Flip these things, I guess. <laughs> uh, let's hope this works. And I'm sure it like took him 15 hours to do to then look at, to be like, yeah, oh, that does work. <laughs> and if it As doesn't, like, oh no, like, it, it looks matter. like shit. Like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Not getting those hours back. This is what you got. <laughs> Swan is pissed. Winslow is clapping. But the audience is going wild. And the stage is literally mm-hmm. aflame. They're screaming, we want beef. We want beef. And Swan slowly starts to realize, oh, maybe this isn't so bad after all. Maybe I can use this. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on yeah. a second. <laughs> and they shove Phoenix out there instead to the Phantom's Delight. The crowd retracts violently, which is funny. They show her the proper respect. Yeah. Right. Right. She comes out. She has not the best ballad at this moment. Right. Like. She sounds great, but it just feels like they were like they're whipped into a frenzy, and they're like, "Oh, a mediocre ballad. Let's yes, all be respectful right souls. now." <laughs> mm. <laughs> Paul referenced the Shakespeare quote about music having charms to soothe the savage breast. Uh, he says she had black belt civilization that she laid on him. <laughs> <laughs> that that collection of words together doesn't make sense, but all right. <laughs> Who cares? It's funny. I love it. She sounds it. like Karen Carpenter. Who cares? Yeah, That's right. She sings this Old Souls, which uh, alludes again to the idealized love between Faust and Margaret. It does sound like something Paul would have written for the Carpenters. But notably, mm-hmm. this part of the, of the movie doesn't really have the irony around it like the rest of the movie does. And yeah. Pauline Kale, who I'm a big fan of, mm-hmm. she said that Brian seemed to see the possibility of sincere emotion in these sort of pop ballads, untainted by seasonality, like the kitsch of the undead. And I honestly don't know if I agree with this as an antithesis to the crass music fads, because it can just be commercialized sweetness instead of the faux horror and rebellion of pop rock. But. It is sort of an unexpected moment of optimism from Brian pulling this movie back from the brink of artistic nihilism that sort of views mass consumption culture as having completely swallowed our means of artistic expression. I'm like, I'm glad Brian at least thinks that there is something that is still possible and working. (laughs) Right. Something good can happen in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Paul also said that this is his favorite of the songs of the movie. He compared it to the philosophy of Keats which I found interesting because Keats also said that truth is beauty and beauty is truth, which does play into that question of authenticity being key to art. So uh, Hmm. there you go. It's all, it's all layered, man. It's all layered. Wow. You got to think about (laughs) it. It really works. (laughs) The crowd does go nuts. Swan sends her flowers and a note saying she's a star and she loves it. She says she'll do whatever he wants for that crowd again. Meanwhile, the crowd's still going nuts for beef. Yeah, they're take him out on a stretcher, yeah. and they're like chanting his name. How often do you get to see a rock star fried on stage? Quite an attraction. <laughs> Paul Williams said, "This is a quote. I think the turning point was in the original script. Beef was killed in the shower. The idea of having the Phantom just threaten Beef and then actually having him killed on stage happened because the kids are seeing so much theatrical violence." 
and Brian made a point of making that theatrical violence look obviously theatrical. You see foamy heads, you see all the strings and all that, but it's wonderful. And the leap in the story where we decided to have it see a real murder and think it's part of the show is, I think, the most powerful message in the film related to Brian's experience with the Kennedy assassination, plus the uh, Vietnam War news as entertainment that was becoming popular at the time. Um, it is grim stuff to be sure. And, and I don't know, it's, it's interesting to uh, sort of have this come into being in the middle of developing the movie because it does feel like such a natural evolution of the story of how it's all leading to this sort of death on stage as the ultimate capitalistic like exploitation of the artist. You know, it's funny. I didn't know that, but thinking about it now, I wonder, do you think that having it happen there undercuts the one at the end? Because it ends with sort of, with multiple deaths on stage. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't mind it. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think it does still work for me in terms of like, this is the exploited death of the artist here. Mm-hmm. But then I think he's saying at the end that it consumes everybody who's involved. That ultimately yeah, it true. overtakes them in a way that they can't predict or, or see the crowd reacting that way. So I, I think it works still. Yeah. I mean, I think it works, but yeah. I was just in hearing that I was like, oh, it's interesting that that was a, a later addition. Yeah, I agree. It, it does. Uh, it, it, that is an interesting point. And the Phantom reveals himself as Winslow to Phoenix and begs her to come with him because the crowd will want more than she can ever give. <laughs> but she says she's mm, willing yes. to give it. Uh, and she runs back to Swan and then goes back to his apartment where they smooch while the Phantom watches impotently. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have to admit that I laughed a little bit when his little lip quivers as his cry. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of all he's got to work with facially yeah. is like <laughs> below the nose. Yeah, he literally has everything else is a mask. It's not it's not ideal for acting, but it is really cool as well with the shot we just watched playing on a small security TV that is like three quarters of the screen while they continue right. to smooch on the last fourth. And clearly, he just normally uses this camera to scummily and covertly record the women that he's sleeping yes. with. Yes. <laughs> and here he's he's getting even more out of it with uh, seeing old Winslow up there perving on him. Yeah. He's like, it's he, you can tell he's real gross because he's like getting off on watching someone else watching him and be make love to another one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like watching himself be watched and that's turning him on. <laughs> it's recursive. <laughs> Up on the roof in agony, the Phantom stabs himself, but Swan goes up there to pull it out because the contract terminates with Swan, so no more suicides, Winslow, please. Come on. Come on, Winslow. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) You're wasting our time. There's no way out with a loophole either now because if Swan dies, the wound will reopen and Winslow will die too. He doesn't care, and, and he stabs Swan in the heart, but Swan just grimaces and says, I'm under contract too. What a twist. What? This is fucking crazy. (laughs) What, what, what? There's more? What's going on? Even the supposed (laughs) Mephistopheles turns out just to be another Faust. Incredible. Mm. I also love the spinning, like, Rolling Stones cover reveal. Every now and then, he'll do, like, a fun cliche. Oh, yeah. Just because he's like, yeah, fuck it. Let's put that in there. It's good. (laughs) This works. This gets my point across real easily. Beef's death takes second fiddle to the love story between Swan and Phoenix, which is, of course, also very telling. Mm Mm-hmm. On the way to the paradise, Phoenix is snorting a bunch of coke, 
and Swan reveals that they've changed the ending of the story to a wedding where Faust gets the girl instead of burning in hell, and Winslow explores Swan's office. He finds video... Uh, well, I also should say, that's, I mean, a huge example of this sort of distortion of the original source material. And Oh, yeah. <laughs> changing it from burning in hell as uh, penance for all of the bad shit that he does in the... <laughs> <laughs> in the book, in the play, <laughs> to being like, oh yeah, he actually gets the girl and they live happily so ever after. Yeah. I mean, not only people want a happy ending, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> he explores Swan's office and he finds video of Swan's contract. Uh, he was in the bathtub smoking a hookah when he decided he'd rather <laughs> die rather than grow old. And right before he cuts his wrists. His reflection speaks to him. It is fun. I like this, like, goofy mirror speaking yes. to him thing. Mm -hmm. It's the devil, of course. And he mm -hmm. says, hey, this is going to be a moving portrait of Dorian Swan. Yeah. <laughs> It'll age in your place as long as you watch it one a day to remind yourself how lucky you are. This is a very funny and petty move by the devil yeah. to be like, you better remind yourself <laughs> of what I did, asshole. Mm-hmm. How beautiful you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paul Williams. <laughs> the video also reveals that Swan and Phoenix are already married, and he plans to kill her at the show. An assassination on live television, coast to coast? Now that's entertainment. Yeah, baby. Winslow burns the video room, while down on the stage there is quite the production happening, and it is revving the crowd up. This is <laughs> intercut with the assembling of the sniper Classic mix of sex and violence as they get more and more primal. Mm -hmm. Swan emerges from the floor. Very funny. Great <laughs> sense of sense of drama. You got to respect it. Mm -hmm. Wearing the silver mask to, again, prevent his photo from being taken. And this was his mask from Battle for the Planet of the Apes from 1973 that they got oh, and took it home. Over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, perfect. The wedding begins, including the sign for Phoenix to be shot. But Winslow is there to intercede as the sniper fires, causing the main goon who was playing the priest at the time to be shot instead. And the crowd eats it up. They storm the stage. They start dancing. This is pulled from the exercises that became Dionysus in 69, the other Brian De Palma movie. And mm -hmm. it's shot in this cinema verite style. And there is this really cute moment in the Paradise Regained documentary where Brian is talking about how he loves shooting this way and how when you get something great in the moment, you're in ecstasy. The lightning in the bottle that you captured and every time you look at it on film, you feel that realness. And I was like, this is the passion that he's talking about. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm seeing it in him just talking right, about exactly. making movies. Mm -hmm. And, and it, I think it, you can see why this is the movie he made. Absolutely. Winslow grabs Swan's mask and reveals that he is disfigured from the burned tapes, which is a very funny reveal for him to have been like, oh, yeah. he's like surprised, too. <laughs> I didn't feel it. <laughs> I thought this mask was hot. OK, <laughs> it is also nasty. It looks like Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Yeah. It's fucking gross. The orgiastic dance continues around them as Swan tries to choke Phoenix in revenge for rejecting him for his fucked up face. Plus, it's revenge on Winslow, too, because Winslow loves her. And so. Two, sure, sure, two sure. birds two with birds, one stone. One st <laughs> with one choking. Wow. Gotcha. Swan and Phoenix. There you go. Those are the two <gasps> birds. There you go. Wow. But Winslow stabs him once more. Now that Swan is vulnerable, even though it kills him too, they're both screaming and writhing, and Winslow pulls his mask off too. So there's all kinds of disfigurements. 
You gotta figure yep. this is gonna be the highest rated TV show of all time. Oh my god. <laughs> what network is this on? Yeah. <laughs> the crowd demanded escalation, and they got it, with this live audience literally covered in blood and still dancing. And Phoenix finally recognizes Winslow. She cradles his corpse as the camera cranes out to the symbol of death records filled with flames. Originally... She was going to have succumbed to the madness and kept singing and ignoring Winslow as he died. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Again, I mean, this nihilism sure. <laughs> where you're like, I'm kind of glad you avoided that, Brian. She's like, I got to ride this. This is my head. <laughs> 15 minutes, baby. When it's up, it's up. <laughs> it is great. I think that it's it's a really impactful movie. It's a, it's a good ending. And. I mean, it's the best horror movie ever made. And, and uh, now, <laughs> now, John, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. I think it is the best horror movie ever made because it is so many different horror films in one. It has so much like the the highs are so high, the passion, the excitement, the it, it, it gets you involved emotionally with these characters before it just goes to crazy kills and stuff like that. So you're invested in these characters. It's very human. It had it orgiastic is a great word for it. The music of it, the heights of it. Just the the mix, any sort of classic horror, you know, film you want is somehow quoted in this movie. It is in here. It has all of them. It is a Frankenstein of horror films. Plus, it's a glam rock musical. And the the music is great. The performances are great. The pace of it, like it, it's it's it has such a fun energy and pace to the whole thing. It's an hour and a half, and it uh, covers so much time, but it just goes by in an instant. I think it's great. It's very cathartic and exciting and like emotional, and you like feel satisfied at the end. Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is a unique moment for one of, I think, America's great modern directors mm-hmm. to to explore something that he doesn't always get to explore. And it's it just feels so personal. It is such an interesting questioning of the use of popular art as a vehicle for rebellion. There is so much layered thinking going on between his own experiences in the film industry and yeah. and and his desire to truly create something. But that's not enough. It's not enough for it to just be intelligent and have a lot to say. The fact is that it is also an excellently executed movie. The performances mm-hmm. are so great. They are so dialed into what they need to be. Everybody is bringing their A game. Jessica's voice is incredible she's got a great voice nails it and paul williams i mean the music that he wrote is so so fun it really feels like the culmination of so many people's talent had to come together to make the movie turn out the way it did and it's such a house of cards as well there are so many plates spinning that you're like waiting for one of them to drop for one of the songs to just suck and ruin it or for (laughs) like there to be a terrible performance or something and it never happens there is it's it just draws you in like you said it clips right along that 90 minutes flies by it's just so great it's just so many things and and doing them all so well yeah and if i could add to what you were saying about like having so much to say it does have a lot to say but it's never ponderous right or like pretentious or like see this is why excess is bad right. or this you know it's just sort of like yeah that's what it is and it just plays it out and it's so both smart and just there to have a good time right absolutely i i think that it's this is a classic if you ain't laughing, you're crying kind of situation. Yeah. I think. And so <laughs> Brian is like, look, 
this is just the way it is and and Mm -hmm. and here's a movie about having to navigate that (laughs) and uh i think that he he just absolutely kills it it's the best horror movie ever made yay there we go we did it we did it john i want to thank you so much for coming on the show this was an absolute blast oh thank you so much for having me any excuse to rewatch fan of the paradise absolutely. i love it absolutely please tell the people where they can find you where they can listen to your show read your book follow you on social media all that jazz all of that jazz you can follow me on twitter at jfly99 i'm on instagram at john underscore flynn 99 i didn't get those all at the same time you can visit my website john Flint Comedian. Uh, you can buy my book either on Amazon. If you want an autographed copy, you can buy that on my website, uh, John Flynn Comedian. Uh, my podcast is called Two Old Queens. It's uh, You have been a guest on it. Mark Rennie and I, my co-host, we have guests come on. We talk about movies to try and figure out the gayest movie ever. If you want, if you like horror musicals, as I said, a musical it, a musical parody, it's available on YouTube. Go check that out. That's a lot of fun. That's it. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to co-sign the recommendation for uh, for two old queens. Not even my episode, which I mean, certainly that would be a fine place to start. Of course, yes, but yes. It's um, it's just a dang great show. I love listening to it. And uh, I recently was listening again to the uh, Total Recall episode. I was like, man. Oh. <laughs> This the show is just so great. Oh, thank you. It's a lot of fun to do. Yeah, so go check out Two Old Queens and uh, and and follow uh, follow John on all on all the platforms and everything. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere because I did get all of those accounts at the same time. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Instagram, Letterboxd, if you're on there, all that jazz. If, if I'm on there, it's probably LittleHorrorPHL. <laughs> that includes the Patreon. If you are really enjoying the show and you're saying, boy, I wish there was even more of it, Sign up for the Patreon, where for just $5 a month, you can get all kinds of bonus episodes. We've covered all kinds of things like just highlights uh, of other movies. We've talked about what we talked about, the Blob 88 with Mike Mitchell. Uh, That was a really fun one. We talked about the 13 best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1953 with Branson Reese. Wow. Yeah. Anything and everything that might not fit necessarily as best horror movie ever made finds a place over on the Patreon so you can check that out. It's a lot of fun. Rate and review if you want to do something for the show that doesn't involve spending any money, but still really helps. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I always forget to plug the mailbag, but if you have any questions that maybe someday I'll do another mailbag up, send it to bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. All right. That's it, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.